Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. So this week, we're introducing Evidence Base, a segment where we highlight new research on the relationships between technology and people, politics, and power. This week, we've got an interesting story about fairness and machines. And Rebecca, our Tech Policy Press audio intern, is here to talk about it. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Justin. So what do you have for us today? Well, I think the best way to start is actually on a little tangent. I have a video to show you. It's an experiment that was run by a team of researchers on capuchin monkeys. Okay, so now I'm supposed to watch this thing? Yes. So you can see there are two monkeys in separate cages, side by side. They can see each other. And there's a researcher in scrubs. She has two containers, one with pieces of cucumber and the other with grapes. Now, the thing you have to know about these monkeys is they freaking love sugary stuff. Juice is like heroin to them. So obviously, between cucumbers and grapes, the grapes are the real jackpot. So the monkeys have been taught to give the researcher a rock in exchange for a treat. So see, the first monkey is giving her a rock. She gives it a piece of cucumber. Monkey eats it. No problem. Then she turns to the other monkey, who does the same thing, gives her a rock. But this monkey gets paid with a grape. Now the other monkey is watching this happen, so it gives the researcher a rock, and she hands it a piece of cucumber. Now watch what it does. (laughs) The first monkey takes the cucumber, looks at it, and throws it right back at the researcher. Then it starts banging on the table with its hand and shaking the bars of its cage, like, lady, where the F is my grape? That is not a happy monkey. No, it is not. So what we see here is that fairness is this sort of deep, innate sense that we have as primates. And when things are so obviously unfair, we have these really strong reactions. We flip out. But more and more, as we barrel into the future, it's not a lady in blue scrubs making these decisions about who gets what resources. It's actually machines. It's algorithms deciding which resumes recruiters see, how prominent your dating profile is on the dating app, which gig workers get which jobs. So what does science have to tell us about how people feel when machines are making such decisions? Right. So I talked to a couple of researchers who ran this other study. Uh, I can start here. I'm Malte Jung. I'm professor in the information science department at Cornell. I study human-robot interaction. I've been doing that for the past 10 years. I'm Houston Clory. I'm a postdoc at Yale, and my research focuses also on human-robot interaction and how we can build robots that can understand fairness and can behave in a way that we consider fair. So Dr. Clory and Dr. Young, they were looking at something they call machine allocation behavior. That's basically when machines are making decisions about doling out resources. And they wanted to know how humans feel and behave differently when they know it's a machine making these decisions versus a human. Here's Dr. Clory. One of the interesting things about our field has been how much there is to learn about how humans respond to the way robots behave. For me, the, the focus has always been about fairness and, and do people respond in the same way to a machine uh, when it's fair or not. For, if I, if I jump, jump in, for me, what's so fascinating about machine behavior is this 
kind of growing understanding that some of the behaviors that machines exhibit is unique to machines. We don't see that otherwise out in the world. What we were particularly interested in has been how the behavior of a machine might impact how we interact and relate to other people. So to study that, they used, as all good behavioral researchers do, a game of Tetris. It's like a thing in the behavior world. Researchers love Tetris. I love Tetris too. So how did this experiment work? Right. So they ran this study looking at people playing a collaborative game of Tetris. Only one person could control the falling blocks at a time. The other person just had to sit there and watch. But on some teams, one player got way more time in charge than the other. You, you might see that sort of where the fairness aspect comes in. I mean, playing Tetris is, is fun and watching someone play Tetris, not, not so much. And sometimes they'd tell the team, someone, a person, is deciding whose turn it is. And other times they'd say it was an algorithm choosing who got to go. It was the appearance of an algorithm that was making the decision because in the back end, we actually had control over who was getting more resources. And what they found is a few things. First, people knew right away when the turns were unfair. And they didn't care who was making that decision. Being sidelined by a machine felt just as bad to them as being sidelined by a person. The next thing they found is that when a person was favored by a machine, it kind of went to their head. When it was an AI that made this decision, people who received more resources actually saw their partner who received less resources as less dominant. So essentially we found that receiving more resources from an AI actually leads to a bit of feeling of empowerment, which was very interesting. So people who received more resources from a human had no difference in how they perceived their group member as dominant or less dominant. Interesting. So it's like people taking more stock in how much an algorithm seems to value them than other people. Totally. Dr. Clory actually had a funny story about that. You know, a couple of our friends decided to, oh, let's check our Uber ratings and see who has a higher Uber rating. And then, you know, we started comparing these values with one another. And then, you know, the person who had the lowest Uber rating, we started making fun of them. And, you know, even though we have no idea how this rating came about, we're attaching their personality to this value and changing the way they perceive this person. <laughs> and this is their central point, that how machines treat us will perhaps cue us on how we view each other. Machine allocation behavior really changes how we perceive other people, how we relate to them. And I think that's hugely important because anything we do as people, I mean, we do with others. We, we live with others. We, we build our families with others. We work with others. There's, there's not much we do alone and we can accomplish alone. And so kind of understanding how machines mess with this fundamental aspect of what it means to be human is, is really crucial. Dr. Clory told me that in the long term, fairness generally improves how well people work together. But something his colleague, Dr. Young, pointed out is that a machine might not appreciate that if it's only focused on maximizing performance in the short term. Because in this study, we found that actually the groups in which the allocation was unequal, in which one person got a lot more, they performed much better than the ones where it was evenly distributed we really need to enable machines to reason about this stuff. And in that way, reason about trade-offs is like about hmm, how do I trade off the performance of the group versus the, their tendency to be friends after. So how do you make these trade-offs? 
those are questions I assume for future research. Fascinating, Rebecca. Thank you so much for sharing. My pleasure. Thanks so much, uh, Rebecca Rand, for that segment. And Rebecca, wishing you all the best for the start of a new semester at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. Listeners, you can expect to hear more segments from Rebecca this fall. Next up, my conversation about privacy, AI, and competition with the author of a new book from Fast Company Press titled Containing Big Tech, How to Protect Our Civil Rights, Economy, and Democracy. My name is Tom Kemp. I'm a Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur, investor, policy advisor, and the author of the book Containing Big Tech. Tom, maybe we can start off with just a brief history of your career in Silicon Valley, what types of companies you've created, and why you've decided to turn to policy. I graduated from the University of Michigan, grew up in the Midwest, and had the opportunity to interview at Oracle back in 1988. And when I came out to Silicon Valley, it was like the land of fruit and honey. And it was just amazing with all the uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And so I joined Oracle, worked there for a couple of years, and then just started doing startups. And the last startup I was at, I founded it and was CEO. It was a company called Centrify and was able to grow it to a $100 million cybersecurity provider and did the classic go out, raise Silicon Valley money with a venture capitalist and was able to get to the point that it got acquired. And the startup that I had before, which I also co-founded, went public. So have a 25 plus year track record of building companies in Silicon Valley. Lately, it was very much in the cybersecurity area. And so I saw what the bad guys were doing. And that got me really concerned about this large amounts of data being collected, how it can be exploited. And then after my company got acquired, I took some time off and then really started digging into privacy and took some online courses, read a lot about it, and then eventually hooked up with a guy by the name of Alistair McTaggart, who was starting to get this proposition on the ballot. And I worked with him for six plus months as a full-time volunteer. Basically, I was the chief marketing officer to help get Proposition 24 passed. And then since then, I've been doing more and more policy work, working with candidates, and then also have written some of my own laws here in California. The most recent is Senate Bill 362, the California Delete Act. Most folks probably don't know that it's possible for individuals, organizations to write laws and to have those uh, co-sponsored by legislators in California. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with the Delete Act and are there any other bills that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, so obviously California has a direct to the voter vehicle, which is the proposition system. But the reality is that the bar is so high that you really need to be very wealthy because nowadays you have to collect at least a million signatures. And the last time someone did it just with pure volunteers was maybe 30 years ago. And so nowadays you have to go out and pay $7 per signature. So right off the bat, it just even to get something even close to being on the ballot will cost seven, $10 million. But also if you're able to catch the ear of a politician, you can, here in California, you can come to them and you can propose an idea. And so I'm very fortunate that I've gotten to know my local state senator, Josh Becker, 
over a year ago, I proposed a bill regarding better regulating data brokers, and he got excited about it. And uh, I wrote it, and uh, he took it on. And uh, at that time, the bill got actually killed by the tech industry. They were able to backroom lobbying, was able to get it killed. And so this year, I decided to go bigger and and badder and uh, built a much more comprehensive bill that was modeled very much heavily on Senator Ossoff and Kennedy's Delete Act and really taking the concept of the FDC's do not call registry and applying it to data brokers where people in California could go to a single government website, put their name, their email address, then any registered data broker would have to delete those people that went through this clearinghouse. They would have to delete their data. And so the cool news is that, again, Senator Becker was very amenable to this. And then we also started working with a organization called Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. And the folks there, specifically Emery Roan, also contributed and wrote this bill alongside with me. And it passed the California State Senate and it's now on to the uh, assembly where it's the next stop is the Appropriations Committee. Privacy is, I suppose, the major preoccupation or one of the major preoccupations of this book, chapters on digital surveillance, on data brokers, on data breaches, and then to some extent, the privacy concerns that run through the other areas, AI, persuasive technology, kids' online safety, extremism and disinformation, competition. Let's talk about the kind of organizing idea behind this book for you. I mean, clearly, you know, you're concerned about uh, the scale of technology firms, you're concerned about what's emerged out of Silicon Valley, and privacy seems to be at the core of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think first and foremost that these tech companies have largely been unregulated when it comes to the collection of information. And it's interesting that the motivation behind writing this book was that most people, even people in tech that are in Silicon Valley, they they don't really fundamentally understand the business models of some of the, the largest providers, that it's focused on advertising, trying to hoover up as, as much information. And then they're also not familiar with, and these guys, these are people in Silicon Valley, right? So they're probably a little bit more tech savvy than the average American because they, they work in the tech industry and have been doing so. And they may even work at Google or Facebook themselves. By the way, I literally live like a mile away from Facebook's headquarters and it's a 10 minute drive to Google. So I'm like in the epicenter of all this. So what I wanted to do was that given my background uh, in cybersecurity, what I've done over the last couple of years in privacy, but also just living and breathing the Silicon Valley entrepreneurial journey in terms of starting companies, getting VC money, uh, taking one company public, having to get acquired. I, I thought I also had a good mindset uh, you know, and viewpoint in terms of what these large tech companies are thinking about. And so in the end, I wanted to write a book that connected all the dots and would be a book that you could hand your Uncle Larry or someone else that is an informed citizen and has some curiosity about this. And so they could get it, right? They could f- connect the dots themselves and have it uh, be explained to them, not in a complete, deep academic way, but just more at a higher level. And so the awareness would be 
uh, raised uh, what the issues were, but also I wanted to provide solutions. And I, I, I provide in the book solutions, not only for consumers, but also for policymakers in terms of what type of laws and what, what type of things that they could put in specific laws as it relates to privacy, data brokers, uh, data breaches, et cetera. You spend a bit of time talking about the downside of living in a world under surveillance, the downside of living in a world where the cameras are always on. I was struck by the fact that you refer multiple times to the fact that we're living, of course, in a post uh, Roe v. Wade America, and that to some extent that has made it clear to many people what the stakes are with regard to privacy, particularly with regard to the way we interact with information online, what might happen with that information. There have been headlines just in recent days about this how in states where abortion has been criminalized, personal information that folks might trade over text messaging apps or that might be acquired through web search history, et cetera, the extent to which that could create a possible danger for the individuals trading that information. Did you recognize that retraction of a right as a wake-up call in the writing of this book? Well, certainly as a CEO of a Hundred million dollar plus cybersecurity company that had two thousand plus enterprise customers. I got to see firsthand what was happening with hackers, and oftentimes the enterprise customers would call us up after they've been hacked, and it was like, oh boy, that's a lot of data that's being stolen from you, and that's oh, it's going into the wrong hands. The fundamental thing is that in the past, the data was collected from an advertising perspective. And I think people were fine with that trade-off that, okay, I searched for toilets today, looking at Home Depot or something like that. And then for the next three weeks, uh, I see toilet ads everywhere, right? Or lawnmowers or whatever, uh, red dress. Um, But what certainly has happened is that data is increasingly being weaponized against us. And we're seeing more and more cases. And so I thought I had seen a lot of bad stuff. But when I was researching this, it was like, oh my God, that, that's really bad, right? In terms of how data is being weaponized against us. One example is that after the Dobbs decision, Google, based on employee pressure, said, okay, we're not going to collect any of this abortion-related searches. And then if you drive to an abortion clinic, we won't display that. So what I did last August was as I was researching this book, I said, okay, let's see if that's really the case. And for a couple of days, I just did a lot of searches. I downloaded specific apps. I drove to a Planned Parenthood. Luckily, there was a taco truck outside of it. So I parked the car and had tacos, but I was in the same vicinity of it and had actually put in the map that I was driving to it. And all that data was collected. And what Google had said was that they were deleting it and discarding it wasn't the case. And I waited another 30, 40 days. And then a reporter with The Guardian wrote about that in November. And then just recently, Jeffrey Fowler at The Washington Post also wrote about it six, eight months after I had actually saw the same thing as well. And then that caused a letter from, I think, about 10 senators to be written to Google. So it was just eye-opening that these practices are still occurring even after these tech companies said they weren't. And then I think one last thing I also want to add is that, look, we've had big monopolies in the past and Standard Oil was powerful, but it didn't know everything about us. And when 
entities that have such are such constant have such concentrations of power have so much data bad things could happen in terms of my background with identity theft or the weaponization of data as it re relates to the reproductive health, um, how the data feeds into algorithms that make the technology more addictive and then eventually lead people down to rabbit holes, et cetera. So it, it, there was a lot of eye-opening incidents as I was writing this book that I thought I had seen it all, but no, and, and I document those in the book. You're clearly somebody who looks for points of leverage to be effective, you actually lay out in an appendix your own kind of set of requirements for what national federal privacy legislation should look like in the U.S. What do you make of the moment we're in at the, with the ADPPA at the moment? American Data Privacy and Protection Act, do you see the possibility of its passage? Do you see some way to leverage perhaps the concern post-Dobbs, perhaps the concern about artificial intelligence. Can you see national privacy legislation happening in the United States? It's a good bill. It actually meets and in some cases exceeds what California has, although California is evolving. And for example, we came out with the age-appropriate design code, which is not reflected in the ADPPA. And I know you interviewed the Baroness uh, a couple months ago. And then there's other things that California has added. So I would say it's on par with CPRA. I know some people say, no, no, it's so much better, but uh, there, there are areas and aspects that California does exceed it. I think the fundamental issue that I have with it is that it preempts state laws. And historically, just to quote Brandeis, states have been the laboratories of democracy. And I think it's so critical being in California and being someone that sees something happening and being able to work with your legislature, or even if you're very wealthy, to go the direct democracy route, to be able to make a change in difference and to have a federal privacy law acting as a ceiling. And given the fact that it's very difficult for things to do bills to come out, especially in the area of privacy, because we really haven't had major privacy legislation since the 90s. And those were just sector specific with HIPAA and Graham Leach-Bliley. To me, the big downside of ADPPA is the fact that it actually preempts state laws. And if people say that ADPPA is so much better than every state law out there, then they shouldn't have a problem with the ability for it to actually be preempted. Uh, the other big issue, as we all know, is the public right of action. I think there could be some sort of compromise there that maybe you can limit or narrow it as it relates to identity theft-related privacy violations, which I think maybe that's a way to proverbial split the baby, so to speak. But to me, it's a good bill. The fundamental issue is being a California and seeing it that citizens can make improvements in a, especially citizens that are based like myself in Silicon Valley and see the rapid evolution of technology. I don't want to lose that, just like I don't want to lose the ability for California to be able to help set automobile safety standards. So that's, to me, is the big issue right there. But fundamentally, I think it's a really good bill. Just the preemption is the big killer for me. I want to ask you about another uh, bill that you talk about in the book, uh, the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. That one just got reported out of the House Judiciary Committee, 30 to zero, I think, with one member voting present. 
So this does seem to have a lot of bipartisan support. Is that another one that you've followed closely? And do you suspect that it has a chance? I like this bill a lot because obviously I've written in California two data broker related bills, uh, one that got killed by the tech industry last year, SB 1059, and this year, SB 362, the California Delete Act. I was the one that proposed it. I co-wrote it with uh, Emory at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and have been kind of spending like half my time just bird dogging, working with different groups and uh, Senator State Senator Becker's staff to to make this happen. And so really, this Fourth Amendment is not for sale act really kind of address one of the, the key problems that we have with data brokers, which is that government agencies, instead of getting a court order to track the location of specific people, they can actually go and just contact and buy the data from data brokers. And the data brokers, because they've integrated their capabilities with hundreds of different types of mobile apps that have their SDK, that all this location information is being fed in about Americans. And so ICE or someone else can just say, hey, why screw around with a court order? I'm just going to call up XYZ data broker, and I'm going to be able to track these people as well. And it's a complete subversion of, of the Fourth Amendment. And I'm very pleased. And I think people, the nice thing is, is that there has been and is growing awareness with the issues of data brokers. In the FDC Chair Khan's testimony, Matt Gates went on for half his questioning about creepy data brokers. And so I think now there's finally a consensus. And I think maybe Republicans look at the threat more so as this data being sold to government and not trusting the FBI and some government agencies. And I think in the case of the support for SB 362, we have Planned Parenthood who look at the using the location data tracking as a threat to people visiting abortion clinics. And so I think there is now consensus. And so I'm actually quite encouraged that this could actually make its way through. That bans people from buying the data, but the fundamental issue is, you know, should they actually have the data? And that's why I want to empower consumers in California. And I really hope the Ossoff and Cassidy Delete Act also gets through at the federal level. And and it's incorporated in the ADPPA, which gets people to actually delete the data right off the bat. Because even if you ban governments, other people can buy it, right? Get the location information. So let's just get rid of the data to begin with and empower consumers to, to have some control of how they're being tracked and making sure that, that people are not uh, collecting and retaining this information. Logically, your chapters on surveillance, on data brokers lead into artificial intelligence and uh, what you think can be done there. You, you mentioned the blueprint for an AI bill of rights. We've seen the Biden administration come out with some voluntary principles that certain AI firms uh, have agreed to around safety and other considerations about how they'll perhaps make their products more transparent and agreeing to certain uh, measures that hopefully will defend against some of the worst possible abuses. Uh, do you think we're close to getting past, I guess, some of this well-intentioned sort of principles and speaking and blueprints in this country with regard to AI? Do you see a moment in the near term where we might catch up with the EU and actually put a few laws in place? Probably not, because just how dysfunctional DC is, they could probably agree to a narrow, hey, 
government agencies can't buy location data from data brokers, but it's harder. But I also have a fundamental issue with how we're designing a lot of these laws, even at the privacy perspective, is that what we've seen is, is that the tech industry, especially at the state level, after losing in California, they've been able to heavily influence how state laws have been written. And the fundamental problem that we have, and I think this same problem will, is going to eventually apply to uh, any AI laws that eventually come out, is that the laws make it hard for consumers to exercise their rights. So let's just take privacy, that you, there are entities that you interact directly with, like a Walgreens, a Walmart, a Google, et cetera. And yeah, you may have the right to actually say, tell me what you have on me and don't sell my information, but you have to do that on a one-on-one -on -one basis, right? And what we really need, I think it's really critical, it would be better from a consumer perspective if we had universal support for a global opt-out signal that basically as you visit these sites, it just sends the signal like, don't sell or share my information. And so you avoid like the cookie fatigue that people have in Europe or even what we have in the US. Similarly, for data brokers, we don't even know who these organizations are. And if we do find them, we have to contact them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so that's why I think having something like the Delete Act, where you can go one time, one place, and put your information in and hit the delete button and it deletes all the information. Specific to AI, I also think from a transparency perspective, we should look at and implement it transparency from the consumer's perspective, right? And make it easier for the consumers. Because in the end, yeah, the companies that are creating the chat GPTs, et cetera, yeah, they may be more transparent, but it, it will be buried in privacy policies. And for in today's announcement that happened with the Biden administration about providing transparency, and one of the things was like, okay, They'll put watermarks with audio and video, but the big thing is text, right? And so we should have the right to be able to take chunks of text and actually ask the large AI providers, did you cut and paste it and said, do you generate this? Did you generate this? And that will address a lot of the issues that people are worried about students handing in essays like today the university of michigan law school said it's not going to accept anything that's uh, any applications that use chat gpt well let's not guess or speculate let's give the ability for a consumer to be able to actually ask the company if they generated so i think the fundamental issue and i try to bring this forth in the book is that even if we get some of this stuff laws for privacy or better guardrails for ai it should be approached from a consumer centric to make it easy as opposed to, yeah, the tech companies, they'll, they'll sign up for, okay, more transparency, but then their privacy notice, instead of it being 30 pages becomes 33 pages and people will just still do an accept all because they just want to get on to the website and, and it's not going to improve things. And so I think we need to make privacy and guardrails for AI just more simpler and easier, more consumer centric. Of course, there may be some technical challenges to some of the identification or at least trustworthy identification of AI-generated text. I think that's a, still a, a big technical problem. I want to ask you also, a big focus of the book is on competition. You, you've already talked about scale and the extent to which the scale of the big tech companies 
you know, puts them out of the league, even of past monopolies like Standard Oil or railroads, et cetera. You detail various impacts of the, the scale of the current tech firms on innovation, on our politics, and on the press. I want to ask about that in particular. You don't uh, go into the book on to some of the questions around some of these schemes that are popping up around the world to get big tech firms to try to remunerate news firms. But I thought I might ask you what your view on those is, uh, given the stance in the book. Things like the JCPA, the Journalism Competition and Protection Act, which is in consideration in the Senate. There's a similar kind of bill in California at the moment. There's just passed legislation in Canada. There are other jurisdictions around the world thinking about these bills that essentially would require the tech firms to remunerate journalism organizations for content. Yeah. In the California bill that was put forth by Assembly member Buffy Wicks, who's actually one of the, we, we got on board with my SB 362, and she was the one that wrote or uh, sponsored the AADC from California last year. But what happened with that one is that the opposition came forth, and so she agreed to pull the bill and make it a two-year law. So that the California bill is no longer active. But yeah, I, I just stepping really far back is that for the last 20 plus years that there's been no regulation about the collection of data and the use of the data, which increasingly is being utilized by AI. At the same time, for the last 20, 30, 40 years, we haven't had strong antitrust. Really, the the last major antitrust activity was stopping Microsoft from requiring the bundling of Internet Explorer. And by the way, when that came through, that opened up the door for Google and this massive amount of innovation uh, to occur, just like a massive amount of innovation occurred when AT&T was broken up and we had a telecommunications revolution occurring because of that. But yes, what happens is when you have these large tech monopolies, it actually exacerbates the problems that we talked about before as it relates to privacy and AI. And it also causes new problems, such as what we're seeing with the press. And I believe that unless you address the issues as it relates to behavioral advertising, I'm not saying ban behavioral advertising. I'm saying that you you limit it not to children and then also not rely on sensitive data being used with it. And then you also need to address the practices of the big tech companies of preferencing their own music, their own news applications, and then also address that a lot of newspapers get their subscriptions through mobile apps and Apple and Google take 30% right of that, which means less dollars are being flowed. I think you need to address the privacy-related issues, and you also have to address the unfair charging of the transactions as well as the application fees and the self-preferencing of the big tech's own news apps and music apps, et cetera. So those need to be addressed as well to release more money to be available for publishers. You also need to seriously look at uh, Senator Mike Lee's America Act, where he proposes actually breaking up uh, Google's ad tech business because Google participates in all parts of 
of the advertising ecosystem, and they're taking like 50%. And that also derives money from publishers as well. So I think you first need to do all that stuff, right? Because there's 30% here, 50% here are not going to the news organizations. And then, yes, then consider the JCPA or was it Canadian Bill 18, et cetera. Then they should also have some sharing right there as well. But if you don't address the preferencing, the 30%, the use of surveillance advertising, et cetera, then these type of bills are really not going to help that much because huge chunks of money are not making it to the publishers right out of the gate. You conclude by suggesting that the unassailable position of big tech, despite all of the reforms that are perhaps on the table or suggested that you chronicle in the book, the position of these companies seems like it's set to only improve over the next few years, their profits, their scale, their control over so many aspects of the digital ecosystem. And certainly, who knows what advantage artificial intelligence will bring to these large firms. What gives you hope at the moment? I mean, you point in the book to perhaps a generational shift. Yeah. Look, I did, um, the book itself, I, I did want to you know, write it so you could hand it to your Uncle Larry or uh, a friend who may not be up to date and so they can get it. And But I also didn't want to be a complete Debbie Downer and just say, oh, God, everything sucks. And I wanted to actually provide solutions. And I am hopeful because in the past, we did break up the robber barons and the railroads. We did break up standard oil. We did break up and better regulate telecommunications and we had a telecommunications revolution. We are no one's using Internet Explorer today, but if we hadn't taken the the antitrust activity with the DOJ to require Microsoft not to force the use and embedding of it, that caused companies like Google, uh, et cetera, to proliferate. And so I do feel that there is better awareness out there. I I do see a lot of positive activity and maybe some of these bills get get through. Uh, Last year, as it relates to data brokers, there was a federal bill limited just to judges, right? Coming out of that incident in New Jersey with the the child of a, a federal judge getting killed. And okay, so if we can do provide protections to judges and we're also maybe considering banning the the sale of sensitive data to governments then then like why not take the next step and i'm hoping my book pushes things i don't think my book's revolutionary or uh, i think there's some interesting things that i've discovered and i tie i connect the dots and i try to make it understandable to like the layperson but i'm also hoping that this gives further impetus to make the changes that people can literally hand the chapter on what should be in a privacy bill and say, hey, why don't we have these type? Why don't we have the right to know? Why don't we have global opt-out signals, et cetera, and just educate people and, and get people to, to further push this through? My goal was to push the ball forward and nudge things along in, in, in a small way, while at the same time, I, I'm putting my money where my mouth is and trying to contribute to the bills, at least here in California, being written. Well, I would agree that this is uh, readable. And for anybody that wants a tour of the various legislative solutions that are at least on the table to a lot of the harms that you address here, 
it's a very uh, useful resource. So I would uh, commend Tech Policy Press readers to it, containing big tech, how to protect our civil rights economy and democracy by Tom Kemp. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to Rebecca Rand. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.